Uh, before we get into the message, I want to share an update about how the Lord has been at work here at this local church and how he's been at work in our staff and leading in the future. I'll preface this announcement with this. As an elder team and staff, anytime you see the Lord at work in his church, even when it involves change, it is deeply encouraging. It is a reminder that it's his church and he's on the move in both the individual lives of the people of Crosspoint, in the uh, corporate uh, local church, as well as in the greater kingdom, in the big C church. So here's the short story of the upcoming changes, and then I'll work back through them for greater context. Uh, pastor John will be stepping down from his role as student pastor in the fall. Uh, right now, he anticipates that he will leave the Crosspoint staff as early as September or as late as November, somewhere in that range of time. Kent Heinrichsen, who is a member here at Crosspoint, was up on stage a couple weeks ago. Kent, you want to stand? He's here uh, this Sunday. He uh, recently graduated from Moody Bible, served as an intern here a couple summers ago uh, at Crosspoint. He's going to be joining the Crosspoint staff as a pastor of our Hype student ministry, as well as helping us uh, grow and develop a college ministry here at Crosspoint. We're hoping that this summer is kind of a launching pad of that and that it continues in the fall with Kent's leadership and other volunteers engaged in that leadership. So one, so God is calling one shepherd out and one shepherd in. Now I want to work through this and talk through some of the questions you might have. Before you leave, I'd encourage you to pick up an FAQ back at Guest Connections as well as a letter from John of a heart of gratitude for this local church. encourage you to check those out afterwards, but I'll work through some of those uh, FAQ right now. So is the Watts family moving? And if so, where? Well, John and Sarah anticipate that they will be moving to the state of North Carolina. An exact city has yet to be determined. John spent much of his childhood in the Charlotte area and still has a heart for that area and the friends and family that reside there and live there. Why is John stepping down? John's been on staff at Crosspoint for three years now. Over those years, John's calling within the kingdom has been clarifying. And as our, church and as our church family would attest to, he has a strong gift and ability to teach and preach the word. We have been strengthened as a church as a result of that. His ability in that area has been affirmed not only by Crosspointers, but those outside of Crosspoint who've sat under and in his teaching. Through the plurality of godly counsel, both inside Crosspoint, outside Crosspoint, and John and Sarah seeking the Lord, they believe... And I, and I affirm this, that God has a call in their life one day to either serve as a church planter or as a uh, senior leader, teaching pastor type role in an urban suburban context and not necessarily in a rural one. They sense their time in student ministry at Crosspoint needs to come to a close so they might begin to prepare intentionally for this next season of kingdom work. This spring, he had a growing sense that the Lord was calling them out versus calling them to remain. And I appreciate their desire to be obedient to the Spirit and walk by faith. So what will John be doing next? Well, John is currently exploring job opportunities in the North Carolina area. He's hoping to connect to a local church that's either affiliated with the Acts 29 Church Planting Network or the Southern Baptist Convention. He's exploring potential residency programs in the North Carolina area that trains up and raises up church planters. An exact role has yet to be determined, but is being investigated and prayerfully pursued. We're trusting the Spirit to continue to lead and direct. So what will student ministry look like for the summer and fall? Well, John's going to continue to lead that ministry. All the activities that are planned on the summer calendar, you can pick that up at Guest Connections. All those things are still occurring. 
our elder team's strong desire as well as John's is that Hype would be left in a position, handed off in a position, I should say, in a very healthy, vibrant uh, way in a highly engaged volunteer team that has a intentional plan for outreach and disciple making over this next year because ministry is going to continue and I'm grateful for the hype leaders that are already engaged going to go on a retreat this next weekend to pray and pursue a plan for this next year and I'm also prayerfully hoping that others will engage in this ministry and say we need to invest into students let's go be a part of that so then in September Kent will be joining the Crosspoint staff on a full-time basis Kent grew up in the area got baptized here, calls his church home. He has a deep love for the Lord and a love for those yet to be reached, a love for this local church in the full circle kind of moment. In my second year of coaching basketball at Eureka Middle School, Kent was on my team over 10 years ago. He wasn't six foot five at the time, which was highly disappointing because we would have been a lot better. But his elders and staff were thrilled to see the Lord call one of our own if you will, to join in the mission of making disciples who live 3D together. If you know Kent, you know that he loves people well and has a joy and passion not only for the Lord but for the lost and for the church to be on mission. Like I said earlier, Kent will be uh, leading up Hype Student Ministry as well as a new ministry to uh, college students that we hope will kind of build on this summer, build off of this summer. So what's Kent doing now? Why can't he start uh, tomorrow. Well, since December or since September 2018, Kent has been serving on a part-time basis at a church in Hammond, Indiana, while he's been ser- while he's been finishing up his senior year at Moody Bible. And so, uh, just like John wants to leave well, and that takes time. It takes time for Kent to leave well and make sure he hands off ministry and things that he's doing there well in a kingdom mindset versus a selfish mindset. So thus, thus the time between here. In September. Some of you might be asking in your heads right now, okay, um, are all the other staff members leaving too? Because they just kind of keep dropping like flies. Right? No. No. We're experiencing a lot of transition right now as a church. And all that transition we are experiencing, I want you to see this, is evidence of our God at work. Evidence that believers are walking by faith and not by sight. Evidence that they're seeking to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for them to do. In the fall, as many of you know, Pastor Eric and his family will be commissioned and sent out to start Redeemer Community Church in Menunk. Pastor John and his family will be, will be transitioning out this fall as well to pursue where the Lord is leading them. The Johnson and Watts family are dearly loved by the Crosspoint family. And while there's a sense of loss in seeing the Lord call out family members, there's also a sense of great joy, again, in seeing brothers and sisters actually walk by faith and want to be obedient to the Lord. I hope that your faith is built not only by their testimony, but as well as Kent's desire to come and join and be a part of the mission here, as well as staff members and elders and leaders throughout this church that are saying, this is where we've been called to be a part of. It's living by faith, not just when you move. It's living by faith when you remain and when you arrive. It's all living by faith. And all of that, I pray, builds up your faith so that you would do the same thing in whatever the Lord has called you to in the roles that you have. Unfortunately, many of you have been a part of this. Many churches are forced into transitions like this due to personal sin, 
interpersonal conflict, or some self-centered reason or motivation. Listen, this is none of that. Praise God it's none of that. I've been a part of churches with that. It's heartbreaking. It's not glorifying to God. This is glorifying to God because it's actually people who want to be obedient to the Lord. The end of our document called The Crosspoint Culture says this, As God's people, we're called to walk and live by faith, so we're okay with change, trying something new, and trusting in the God who knows and sees all. We pursue a kingdom mindset that partners with other Bible-believing, Christ-centered churches and ministries. In the end, our goal is not to bring Crosspoint glory, but God glory. We're shining His light, expanding His kingdom, and seeking to leave an eternal impact on our community and world. Praise God for how He's enabling us to live that out as church. The Lord is calling some to go, some to arrive, and some to remain. In all of those, the kingdom of God is expanding here. It's going to expand in Menunk. It's going to expand in North Carolina one day. You need to hear this from me because some people have asked how I'm doing in this transition. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. I see a call on Eric's life to shepherd in a local, in a small town mindset and to plant and water over a generation plus. I see a call on John's life to shepherd in an urban and suburban context and keep fanning into flame the gift of preaching. I see a call on Kent's life to shepherd in the context that he grew up in, understanding all its quirkiness that we have in our area and being able to shepherd that well, lead people to Jesus in that way. I'm encouraged at the potential of two new elders joining our team. If you're doing the math, we're like, we're up three pastors down two, so we're up one, right? So there's encouragement there, okay? I'm encouraged at the faithfulness of our existing elder team, our staff, the leaders and servants around this place. VBS is going to happen next week. It's going to go off without a hitch because leaders and servants are apart. They're engaged. They're walking by faith. I'm grateful for how cross-pointers live by with great faith, hope, and love. The Lord often uses seasons of transition and change to be a catalyst in our hearts for spiritual growth and transformation. For me, one thing that, that, that all this change is doing is affirming that the Lord is calling Heather and I to faithfully keep planting and watering here. And that's not a begrudging obedience to that. That's a joyful, this is where the Lord has called us, and we're going to do this with great expectation, great faith, great anticipation of how the Lord will continue to work here. Change like this doesn't cause me to be unsettled. It doesn't. And you need to know that. It actually only causes me to be more settled and more anchored. I love you all. I love this church. I love the people yet to be reached. And we all have names in our heads, right? I hope you do. And if you don't, you need to pray. That's another message. Easy. God's called us to a mission. We're a family on a mission. And so we're sending out and we're welcoming and we're remaining faithful to the Great Commission. So what about you? What about you? If you call this church home, what are you being called to in this season of transition? I think it can be summed up with one word, engage, engage, engage in a posture of prayer that prays with expectation and faith, engage as a member of Crosspoint that lives out to one another's, that, that rejects isolation, that leans toward one another, 
engage in the area or areas of ministry the Lord has called you to and serve wholeheartedly, joyfully, faithfully. Engage as a disciple maker, a missionary that shows and tells as a way of life and not as a compartment. Crosspoint family, the mission remains the same, that we exist to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus who live 3D together. Our God is forever faithful and at work, and so may we keep walking by faith in this next season of church life. I'd encourage you to reach out to an elder, reach out to myself if you have questions or thoughts. I'd also encourage you to talk to Pastor John directly, to ask about his family, his future, his feelings, all things that start with letter F, I guess. Um, but John's an open book, and I've always loved that. I, that. I've enjoyed that about our friendship. But John wrote up a, a letter that's printed at Guest Connections, a heart of gratitude over the past seven years of being a part of this church. I encourage you to get that. And on email, you'll, find, you'll see all those things come out uh, after the service today. I encourage you to meet Kent. He's the tall guy in the room, taller than me, which is kind of sad. Um, all right, I just want to pray, and then um, somehow we're going to shift to the book of James, which is going to be a radically different message and topic, all right? Uh, Father God, we trust you. We love you. You are the chief shepherd. This church is not built on you. It's not, the church isn't man's idea. It's yours. It's your design, and it's intended to exalt you, magnify you, and I pray that this church would do just that, that it would magnify you, that the name of Jesus would be the thing that people hear and see as they encounter ministry here. We are grateful to see believers walking by faith. We're grateful for the Wattses and the Johnsons willing to be obedient to the Spirit and trust and walk by faith. We're grateful for Kent being willing to walk by faith and come and join us in this mission. We're grateful for the servants, the believers, the members here who are saying, we're in, this is where I'm called, and this is the mission that I will give my life to. May you be glorified. May you enable us with your Holy Spirit to serve in a way that speaks and reflects you so well. Give us great faith. Give us great anticipation. Give us great expectation. Help us to serve with great faith, hope, and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, get to the book of James. We'll be in chapter 1. We're starting a new series today that will take us through the middle of August. In case you're wondering, the sermon won't be as long as usual. Um, but I, I wanted to give appropriate time for that announcement. I want to us to be able to remember the Lord in communion afterwards. I want us to sing, but I also want us to open up the scriptures and have those on our laps and, and allow the word of God to shape us and transform us and change us as his people. Today we're beginning a new series called Real Faith, Real Life, and, and the book of James is this collision of super practical, how do you live out your faith in everyday life? And the first subject he hits on in chapter 1 is trials and temptations. Like, he is not messing around. He's going straight to the hardest parts of life. And I love the honesty of the Scriptures. I love how nothing is sugar-coated in the Bible. And James is an example of that. And life has trials, right? We know this. It's not if, 
but when trials come, and some of you are in the midst of one right now. For instance, you've lost a loved one. You've got cancer. You're walking through chemo. Your spouse recently left you. Your marriage is struggling. Finances are stretched. You're a farmer, and you're wondering when it's going to stop raining. You're a parent. I had a couple parents this last Sunday express, just, just wrote on a connection card, we're tired. We're tired. Pray for us. Maybe you can relate. You're a child and, you're, and your home life is not rosy. It's not all what Instagram makes it out to be. Others of you feel like you're on the kind of back end of a trial. The pressure of the trial is releasing. For all of us, if we live for another two years, 10 years, 20, or so forth, we shouldn't be surprised when we hit trials. Now, we should not anticipate trials with fear like this, oh boy, what's, what's around the next corner? No, we're God's people. We're God's people. We approach life with great faith and not fear because faith in Christ drives out fear. Our faith is in the risen King of Kings. We have nothing to fear. Romans 8 says condemnation is gone for those who are in Christ. Romans 8 says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, including suffering, including hardship, including death. So we don't approach life with fear, but with faith. And we know that life has trials. And, G and, and James makes this clear for us today. But that's not the point of the text. Like, woohoo, life has trials. I already knew that. Could I have just stayed home today? We don't need to be reminded of that. What we do need to be reminded of, encouraged in as God's people, is how to approach seasons of difficulty. I want us to see here how God, what, what God is seeking to do in us in the midst of a trial. I want us to see the goodness of God in the midst of a trial when we might be prone to doubt it. I want us to be aware of what we're going to have to fight up against and reject in the midst of a trial. We're going to walk through the first 18 verses this morning. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Who is James, first of all? He's the half-brother of Jesus. And yet he doesn't address himself as that, but rather as, as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see from the Gospels that James didn't always believe that. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he didn't believe that. But what changed in his mind and his heart about who Jesus was was not that Jesus was truly the golden child. Can you imagine competing with that? If you have siblings, you probably, you have somebody in your head, maybe you're that person, you are the golden child. But can you imagine your halo would not shine as bright next to Christ? But that, his childhood didn't change James's mind. What changed it was seeing Jesus after he beat death, after he rose from the dead. Resurrection changed everything for James, and James ends up being a leader in the early church, he ends up being martyred and killed for his faith in Jesus, a faith that he did not have early on, but the resurrection led to saving faith, transforming faith. And now it's transforming him and shaping him in all these areas of life that he's going to address in this letter. Verses 2 through 4, Consider it great joy, my brothers, brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. I love the word various to describe trials because it's all-encompassing. Like I gave you uh, eight examples. 
and about a thousand others that I, we didn't address that fall under that various trials, big, small, life-altering, life-annoying. Consider it a great joy. Or your translation may say count. It's a, it's a financial term that means to evaluate. Evaluate how you look at trials. Don't see them through a temporary lens, but through an, an eternal one. They're not pointless. They have a purpose. And the Lord is able to redeem and use both small and big trials of various kinds. He's able to use those for what purpose? It's to mature us in Christ's likeness. They can be considered with great joy, not because they feel good or they're enjoyable like a day at the beach, but rather they can be seen with great joy because the Lord is doing something in us that would not be produced outside of that trial or without that trial. J.B. Phillips said this, when all kinds of trials crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they have come into your life to produce in you what would not be accomplished without them. Think in your own life. Maybe this is your current reality, maybe somewhere in the past. But what were the seasons that the Lord matured your faith in the most? I think if we're honest, it wasn't when it was blue skies in 72. It's been the times of greatest growth have been in the valleys, not the mountaintops. You and I have learned oftentimes through stumbling, falling, or erring in some way. Some of us have had to learn the hard way, but on the other side of that was maturity and growth. Our greatest seasons of growth in Christlikeness have probably not been when everything went our way but actually through difficulty. As of this summer, I'm hitting these marks. 23 years of marriage, 20 years of parenting I hit last week, and 12 years of pastoral ministry. I can point to certain valleys and trials in each of those spheres of life, marriage, parenting, and pastoring, and point to those and go, that's when the Lord grew me. The Lord grew me in humility, not when everything was great, but when everything was hard. The Lord exposed pride in me or sin in me in the midst of the trial, not on the mountaintop. And as a result of that, I can consider that with great joy. I can evaluate that with great joy because I see the larger thing the Lord is trying to do in me. And you can too. We want to believe that we, want to mature, that we can mature in our faith apart from trials. But none of us, none of us like pain. None of us relish in suffering or difficulty. Trials test our faith. They test if we really are going to trust the Lord or not. Even when we don't necessarily see evidence of it, are we going to trust in the Lord when it's foggy or dark? And for the believer in Christ, the trial drives us deeper than it, our faith deeper than it ever was before. John Piper said, faith is like a muscle tissue. If you stress it to the limit, it gets stronger, not weaker. When your faith is threatened and tested and stretched to the breaking point, the result is greater capacity to endure. And that's how the CSB calls it, endurance. The idea in the Greek for this word of endurance is like the endurance to finish a marathon or a race, the strength to keep pressing on, the ability to stay course, stay the course and not take the escape route. I love watching track. And while it's painful to watch when it happens, 
I love the moments when someone falls but then gets back up to finish. Like when someone falls, the collective response in the crowd is, oh, you, you hear it in a crowd. Nobody's like, woo! But when, they all, when that person gets up, like they bit it over the hurdle and they get back up and they finish, everyone cheers. We don't cheer for the fall, we cheer for the finish. That's what we celebrate. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces the ability to finish. To remain under is another way of saying enduring. To remain under the trial. Like you're squatting a lot of weight and you're remaining, remaining under it versus trying to escape from out from underneath it. Because while the weight is difficult and it's pressing down, it's producing in you a faith muscle that wouldn't result if you didn't have that weight on you. I preach at a local nursing home a couple times a year. One reason I enjoy it is it is, uh, is a visual reminder of older saints who, are, who have remained under, who have gone through mountaintops and valleys. Like I, I was, uh, I think there were probably 10 people there this last Wednesday. And there's a guy sitting, cane, cataract glasses on, got up, shook my hand afterwards. And it's one of these, have you ever shaken a, a person's hand and you're like, we're done now, right? No, we're not done? Okay. And that probably had like three or four times happened. And I'm like, this, I don't know how old this guy is, but my hand is being crushed like I'm shaking the hand of an Avenger. Okay? <laughs> He'd been through mountaintops. He'd been through valleys. And he didn't describe those to me, but you know it. The way he spoke of, uh, in reflection to the text that we looked at, and I'm, and I'm walking away going, yeah, I got some room to grow in. I got some room to grow in when it comes to endurance. See, the Christian views trials as a way or a path toward maturity. And we can consider it with great joy as a result. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, he's talking about affliction that he and his team experienced on a missionary trip. And he says this in verses 8 and 9, we were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So not only is the Lord at work in maturing us in, in our faith in the trial, but he's helping us be aware of our need for him, that we are dependent upon him. It's often in trials where the Lord is pruning things away in our hearts and lives so that greater fruit would grow, so that we'd see him as the author and giver of life and that nowhere else satisfies us. So that, as Paul said, that we'd not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. I don't want to trust in some false idol, including myself, that can't raise the dead. I want to trust in a God who beats death. And I want to rely upon his wisdom, which is where James goes next in verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to us or gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. One of my first prayers in a trial is God give me wisdom. Because it's often in the valley that we struggle to know which way is up. And our need for him gets exposed, and we go, Lord, give me wisdom. And do we see, do you see the goodness of God here? When we lack wisdom, we don't, when we don't know which way is up, we can ask God and he will generously give wisdom and do so without hesitation. Not like, listen, you already asked three times a day. That's it. 
cutting you off. Or, really? I have to give you wisdom? No, without hesitation, ungrudgingly. In what area of your life do you need to ask God wisdom for? Are you in a season right now where you're like, if you're honest, you've tried to rely on your own wisdom for a long stretch of time. Where is God asking you to call upon Him for His wisdom? And He's a good God. He's going to give to you generously, without hesitation. We have the Word of God around, before us. We have godly counsel around us. Verses 6 through 8, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and, and unstable in all his ways. So verse 5, it's God, give me wisdom. In these verses, it is God, increase my faith and kill my doubts. Remove my doubts. Increase my faith so they overwhelm my doubts. It's Mark 9, where the father who has a son tormented by a demon says to Jesus, if you can do this, if you can heal him. And Jesus says, if all things are possible for anyone who believes. And the Father says to Jesus, and, and the Father says to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus doesn't kick him down the street with that. He brings healing for the Son. Even in the midst of that, I do believe, help my unbelief, Jesus delivers. That Father in that moment wasn't the double-minded and unstable person that James speaks of. Rather, such a person is, is, is the person not even asking God for wisdom. Maybe giving some lip service, so, oh yeah, my faith is in God. But you're really not asking God for wisdom. You're really not relying upon Him. You're hypocritical in that your mouth might be saying one thing, but your life is saying something completely different. That's what James is speaking of here. Double-minded, unstable. The ESV Study Bible says that to ask in faith is to have a settled trust and confidence in God based on his character and promises revealed in Scripture. And such a trust and confidence is like this anchor when the storms roll in. This is one reason we need to keep growing in our knowledge of who God is as revealed to us through the Scriptures. We need to keep growing in that because it gives weight to that anchor. It drives it deeper into the bedrock. Verses 9 through 11, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. But let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. When you're in a valley, you and I are going to be tempted to look around us and look for earthly things to try to satisfy us try to find our hope in, the temporary things to try to bring stability. And so, for instance, in the picture of, of a financial hardship, we go, our first fleshly response is, well, if I had more money, this trial or hardship wouldn't be here. But if your hope is in more money, it's unstable. It's going to toss you back and forth. Money is just one example, but it can be a substance, possessions, Relationship after relationship, lust, pleasure, food when we eat our feelings, and all those things wither 
They all wither. They have this beautiful appearance, but then they, then they perish and they dry up. These are all examples of things that we are prone to try to escape from underneath the weight. Try to take the exit ramp and go, can I just do this instead and try to deal with the trial through this false way? The Lord produces endurance in us if we remain. Verse 12, blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Do you see the goodness of God on display here? He's building on what he said in verses 2 through 4. He's lifting our chins at, at, at what's at the end of the story and past the trial. When you hear crown of life, think Olympics with that wreath on their head, on the winner's head. It's this picture of victory, blessing, deep joy. Think of an athlete on, on that medal stand. Whatever competition they just completed, it wasn't easy and comfortable. There were moments that they probably wanted to give up in the midst of it. In the time leading up to that event, the months, the years of training, there were days that it was grueling and hard. And yet in that moment of victory, wreath on their head, metal around their neck, they're thinking to themselves, it's all worth it. It was all worth it. I'd go through all those valleys and mountaintops and setbacks and successes because all of it was used to lead up to this moment. Wreath of life, blessing, victory on the head. Believer in Christ, a crown of life is not a maybe. Do you see that? This is not a maybe. James says he will receive the crown of life that God has what? Promised. He's promised to those who love him, who worship him. I know it's really, really hard in the midst of a trial. A crown of life is promised. He won't forsake you. Our God is so good. I love where James goes next because it's so good for us to hear because when we're in a trial, we will experience temptations of various kinds. And despite being reminded of the goodness of God, we might be tempted to doubt that and think that God is no longer good, that he has forsaken us, that he does not care. And when we doubt the goodness of God, we'll be tempted to turn to sin and self and think that those somehow will be for our, our eternal good. Verses 13 through 15. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. God is altogether good. No evil exists in him. His design in Genesis 1 and 2 is perfect, harmonious. And so our holy and perfect and good God will not lead us toward sin. Jesus tells us to pray instead, lead us not toward sin and temptation. Deliver us from evil. It was our sin that led to the fracture of God's perfect creation. Look at these two paths being described in this passage. One path is trials that lead to the testing of your faith. But if we remain under and see them from God's perspective, then we'll grow in endurance, patience, and steadfastness. We'll grow in Christ-likeness and maturity. And what's promised at the end is the crown of life. Life. The other path, though, might appear to start in a very similar spot. It's the same Greek word for both uh, temptation and trials. 
but it has different connotations because the path and the destination are radically different. Temptation leading to being drawn away and enticed, leading to sinful desires beginning, leading to acts of sin, the ever-entangling and enlarging of sin, which leads to death. One path being led by the Lord, resulting in the crown of life, the narrow path leading to life. The other path being led by our own sin and resulting in death, the wide road leading to destruction. The path toward the crown of life will have trials. Jesus says it will have trouble, but those are never the end of the story. Eternal death is never going to be the end. Crown of life is going to be the end, he says, because God is altogether good. And James takes us back to the goodness of God then in verses 16 through 18. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. So what is James saying there? When you're in the midst of a trial, don't be fooled by your flesh. Don't be fooled by the foolishness of others. You're going to wonder if God is good. Don't be tricked into believing the lies that he isn't. Believe rather in a good and perfect Father who does not change, who is stable, secure, good in every single way, and who by his own choice, it says, has chosen you, believer in Christ, to be his. He has called you to himself, to a new earthly and eternal family. And he won't lose you in the midst of a trial. He's a good father. He doesn't lose. Rather, he's present and he's patiently growing you and I more and more into the likeness of Jesus until the day that we are free of all trials and free of all temptations. And a crown of life has been placed upon our head. As we move into a time of communion, when we hold these symbols of bread and juice in our hands, symbols of the body of Jesus being broken for us, the blood of Jesus being poured out for us, the forgiveness of sins, these are symbols of a sacrificial death. And these are also symbols that remind us of his resurrection on the third day. When we hold these in our hands, church, we can't help but be reminded of the goodness of God toward us, that God has been so good to his people. So if you're in a rhythm of sin right now, some sort of entanglement in your sin, somewhere in that spectrum from desire to conception to birth to fully grown, today is the day to repent and turn toward the goodness of God and turn away from the lies, the deceit. If you're in the midst of a trial and it's pressing in on you, as you hold these elements, remember God is good. He's been good to you. He is for you. He's not against you. He's at work in you. He has not forsaken you. The crown of life has been promised to those who love and trust in Him. Father, you have been so good to us. We are reminded of that when we take those elements, when we remember the cross, when we remember the resurrection, when we remember the life of Jesus. And when we remember the hope that we have in Jesus, that it is a living hope, 
an eternal hope, all of that reminds us of your goodness. If we're in the midst of pressure, difficulty, hardship, suffering, trial right now, I pray that you would supernaturally help us, enable us to remind us of your goodness and who you are and who we are in you. If we are entangled in sin, if there is hidden sin in us or sin that's not hidden just out in the open, I pray that you would give us a sweet spirit and a strong spirit of repentance that we turn away from what withers and what dries up and turn toward you, the author of life, the giver of life. I thank you for who you are. We worship you. We declare that you are our Lord, our Savior, and our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.